Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. So Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you are here. Thank you, God, for the fact that you love us, and even though you are the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, that still you are mindful of us and that you care about us, God. And this morning, we just open our hearts to you, Father. We open our hearts to you, Holy Spirit. And we say, Lord, we want to know you more, God. I consecrate my mouth to you, God, as I share the word. And I thank you, Lord. Yeah, just, Lord, that we can receive from you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we start, I want you to turn to, to, to each other and tell the other person or people, what is your favorite book in the Bible and why? All right. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Let's see. Who, who said that their favorite book in the Bible is, uh, is one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Okay. A few. Who said that their favorite book in the Bible is the Psalms? Wow. A popular one. Who said their favorite book is Revelations? Oh. <laughs> We'll pray for you guys afterwards. No, I'm joking. You guys are the prophets. That's cool. Okay, who said that their favorite book is Job? One. Okay. Yo, guys, it's interesting for me, but I very rarely hear people say that their favorite book in the Bible is Job. And I understand why, right? Because Job is not the easiest book in the Bible in terms of how it is written, but especially in terms of the content that it deals with. But a while back, I read through the book of Job, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I believe it's a, it's a book with content that is extremely relevant for us, especially in today's world. And during this process, while I was reading through it, I learned quite a lot about the book of Job, uh, things I didn't know, like, for example, that the book of Job was probably, is probably the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written. So it was probably written first. And I find that to be quite significant. Because the book of Job deals with, with a few themes, but one um, of the themes is a very specific question that it kind of handles around and talks to. And it's a question that if it is the oldest book in the Bible, was at least around since the beginning of biblical history, but I believe it's still very prevalent today. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I googled what is the question that non-Christians ask Christians the most, this was... Nine times out of ten, top of the list. Okay, and it's also in my personal life a question that I've heard people say, because this question goes unanswered, they find it hard to have faith in God, because this thing is a stumbling block for them. So, I want to see, who wants to take a guess at what the question is? And Shauna may not, because she answered last time. Me. How do you know God is real? Okay, that's a good question, but it's not this question. Henning. When is God when tough things happen? Yes. I'm going to rephrase it a bit. Um, the question is, if God is a good God, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Or more specifically, why do the innocent suffer? A very, very important question. And I find... Um, I find it an interesting question. We're going to look at it today, and we're going to look specifically what the book of Job 
says about this and how it handles it. But even before we get to that, I want to talk about the question itself. And I find it very interesting that people who say that they do not believe in God often ask this question. Because if you think about it, the question only makes sense in the context that there is a God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Christianity creates rather than solves the problem of pain. For pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, we had received what we think a good assurance that the ultimate reality is righteous and loving. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that you can approach this question from two sides. The one side, you can say, okay, God does not exist. But if that is the case, then suffering is not really a problem. Because with all due respect, if we lose a loved one or if disease strikes or calamity hits us or someone decides to oppress us, that's someone's decision or just the coming together of circumstances. And if there's no God, there's no need to explain it past that point because there is no reason or explanation why it happened. But if that were the case, then how is it that this question still bothers people who say they don't believe in God so much? The other side that we can approach it from is to say that there is a God, or in the Christian context, that specifically this God is, or he says that he is righteous and loving, and we believe that he is a loving and a good God, then a problem gets created. Because the question becomes, how do we reconcile the goodness and the lovingness of God with the pain and the suffering that we often see in the world and sometimes classify even as unjust? And that's a problem, right? So today we're going to look at what the Bible says about this problem. And we're going to go to the book of Job. And I want you to hold on to your seats because we're going to do a bit of a helicopter flight over the book of Job. There's a lot of content to cover, but it's important. So the book of Job starts off by telling us about Job. And it tells us that he was a man who lived in the east in the land of Uz, wherever that was. And it tells us that he was the greatest man in all the East. And it explains to us all of his wealth. He was an extremely wealthy man. He had a lot of possessions, and wealth was measured in those days in livestock. He had a lot of camels and sheep and things, and he had ten children. And the Bible also tells us that he was a righteous man, that he prayed for his children and continuously did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Then the book of Job transports us to the heavenly realm, into the throne room of God. And in the throne room of God, there was a meeting taking place. And it says the sons of God appeared before him. And amongst them, there was one who the Bible calls the Satan. And his name literally means the adversary. And from the context of the rest of the Bible, we know it's the devil who opposes God and tries to thwart his plans. And God actually starts this conversation with Satan. And he says to him, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So I don't know if any of you have ever seen that uh, video of Chad Leclerc's dad um, after Chad Leclerc won the gold medal at the Olympics, where he's like, look at my son. He's beautiful. I'm so proud of him. He's so beautiful. And he just continues like that for like two minutes. But it kind of feels like God is kind of doing that with Job in front of all of his all of the heavenly beings. He's like, look at Job. He's awesome. But Satan replies, and he says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and all that he has? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand 
and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So this brings up one of the very important themes or questions in Job, and that is, is God alone enough? And Satan takes the stance and he says, no, God, Job is in this for the perks. He's worshiping you and he fears you because of what you have given him and the protection that you offer him. And if you take that away from him, he will curse you to your face. So God replies and he says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God gives Satan a limited authority over Job to touch the things that he has. And he goes and he devises this plan against Job. And the plan had a very specific purpose, and that was to get Job to curse God. And this is how it went down. Okay. So Job was in his house, and one day, one of his servants come to him, and he says, Job, we were in the field with your oxen and your donkeys. And the Sabians came, who were a group of people, and they raided us, and they killed all of your servants, and they stole all your oxen and your donkeys, and I alone have escaped to tell you about this. Now, I don't know what Job was thinking at that time, but it might have been something along the lines of, well, that sucks, and the Sabians are bad, and I'm going to get them back and go get my, my oxen and my donkeys back. Okay, but before that guy even stops speaking, the next guy comes in, and he says, Job, we were in the field with your sheep, and the fire from God fell and consumed all of the sheep and the servants that were looking after them, and I alone have escaped to come and tell you about this. Now, this creates a bit of a problem for Job because the Sabians are a group of people with free will who can make decisions. But the fire of God probably refers to a natural occurrence, and Job would have seen nature as being controlled by God. So this would have raised his eyes upward and had him asking questions about the source of the calamity. And even before that guy finishes speaking, the next guy comes in, and he says, Job, we were in the field with your camels. And the Chaldeans came, and they killed all of the servants except for me. They took all your camels, and they ran away with them. And I alone have come, have come to, um, to tell this to you. And at that point, Job had lost most, if not almost all of his wealth. And then even before that guy stopped speaking, a fourth guy comes in, and he says, Job, your children were all feasting in the house of their eldest brother when a great wind arose and blew on the house, and it crushed down, oh, it fell down and crushed all the children, and all of them died. And I alone have escaped to come and tell you about this. So Job loses all of his wealth and all of his children. And this is where we pick up the story. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's room and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not charge sin or charge God with wrong. Okay, then the book of Job takes us back into the throne room of God. And again, a meeting is taking place. And again, the sons of God appear before him. And again, Satan is there also. And God starts this conversation with Satan. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity Although you incited me against him without reason. Then Satan said to the Lord, Skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So again, God gives Satan a limited authority over Job to touch his health, but not to kill him. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. So the book of Job gives us a few examples of how people can respond to suffering. And here we see kind of the first two. Job's wife, he sees what happens to him and just goes, this is too much. Obviously, God has forsaken us and he, he, he does not care about us. Just curse him and die. And Job, on the other hand, who says, look, I didn't bring anything into the world. Everything good that I've received previously came from God and I received it. So if he wants to take it away, who am I to challenge that? Okay, then comes Job's, Job's three friends come onto the scene. So Job goes into a process of mourning, and his three friends arrive, and their names are Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. By the way, how do we know that Bildad was the shortest man in the Bible? It's because his full name is recorded as Bildad the Shuhite. Okay, that's just a, a joke. But these three, these three guys arrive on the scene, and they can see that, that Job is in extreme mourning, or he's going through extreme suffering. And for seven days, they just sit there next to him, and none of them say a word. And in this time, obviously, the processing starts. Job starts processing what has happened to him and what has occurred, and his friends also start processing it through their worldview. And then after seven days, eventually Job opens his mouth, and this dialogue be begins between him and his friends. And this dialogue is focused around two main points or questions. And the first one is, is God just in its character? And the second one is, does God rule justly in the earth? So does he administer justice? And Job takes a stance, and he says, no. God is not just, because look what has happened to me. I do not deserve what has come upon me, and yet this has happened to me. So I actually demand an audience with God that he would come and explain himself. And his friends say, God is just, and he ju does rule justly in the earth. Therefore, the only way that we can qualify what has happened to you, Job, is you must have done something really, really bad to deserve this. You must have some open door or committed some sin that has brought this upon you. And um, that is a doctrine that was at least still around in the days of Jesus. We read this in John 9, verse 1 to 3. It says, Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in them. And that gives us a hint for what's going to happen in Job. But this is also a doctrine which I think is still sometimes prevalent today, and it's something we have to be careful of. Because when we look at someone's suffering, I'm, sometimes, you know, we, you do get self-inflicted suffering when bad decisions lead to, lead to consequences. And even sometimes suffering can have spiritual roots, but that is not always the case. And as Christians, we have to be slow to judge um, and rather act in love. Okay, but anyway... His friends take this stance, and eventually he gives up on them, and he's like, you guys are miserable comforters. You're really not helping me. I, I don't want to speak to you anymore. I demand an audience with God himself to come and explain to me what has happened. But before he gets that, a fourth guy speaks, and his name is Elihu, and he's Job's fourth friend. And he offers a little bit of a different view. He says, 
God is just, and He does rule justly in the earth, but sometimes He allows suffering so that we as His children can learn specific lessons and so that we can build character. And then after He finishes speaking, God Himself arrives on the scene, and He comes in a whirlwind, and He speaks directly to Job. But interestingly enough, He doesn't answer Job's questions, or does He tell him about the whole scene that played off in heaven? Instead, God asks him some questions of his own. And he starts showing him nature and the universe and all the systems in nature that work together perfectly well in perfect order without Job ever having any part in maintaining or creating them. And he asks him, Job, were you there when I created these things? Or do you have any power to maintain them? Every morning you wake up and they just work and you don't even think about that or worry about it or understand it. And I believe what God was doing was he was inviting Job that just like in nature, he doesn't understand or need to maintain all of the systems and yet they work perfectly together. How much more in ethical issues or the administration of justice can he trust him that ultimately he will administer justice and make, um, give punishment for, for evil and reward for good? And Job sees this and he actually repents and we read in Job Verse 43 to 5, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And again later, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And again, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he says another line, which I'm going to get back to in a second. But Job sees basically that there are things that are too wonderful for him to understand. And he repents and says, God, I will trust you in this. And I, n- I now see my position as well um, in terms of me versus you, you being God who is in control and me not having understanding of even some basic things. And he, he repents. Then God goes to his three friends and he says to them, well, you guys were wrong about me. And you now have to go to Job and say sorry about what you said and did. So, and then when he prays for you, then I will forgive you. Interestingly enough, he does not rebuke Elihu, the fourth guy who spoke. And then God restores to Job even more than he had before the calamity hit. He gets his ten children back and even more wealth than he had before all of this happened. But interestingly, or I want you to notice that this restoration is not like it's not like it's a reward for Job's good behavior during his time of calamity because Job was a righteous sufferer, but he was not a perfect sufferer. And sometimes he actually handled the situation quite badly and questioned it, even accused God. But Job's righteousness was not based on his behavior. Rather, it was based on his position in relationship with God. And I believe that throughout the episode of Job, that position of relationship never change. Yes, he had questions. Yes, he wrestled through things um, with God. But his position in covenant relationship with God didn't change, except for one thing. And it's captured in this one verse in Job. Job, two verses. Job 42, verse 5 to 6. Job says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, I believe that through this process, 
Something happened in Job's relationship with God. A deepening of intimacy and knowledge of God to the point where he says, previously, before all of this, I had heard of you. But now, for the first time, I see you. And I just want to, I want to share something out of my own life where I experienced something similar, not to the same degree, but something similar. And, um, you know, so I, I grew up in a, in a Christian home, but my parents got divorced when I was about five or six years old. And I still remember very well the day that my, my father left. And I, I actually grew up with my mom, but growing up, I had to deal with a lot of the consequences of divorce. I remember my dad telling me when I was older, there's nothing beautiful about, or there's nothing good about divorce. And uh, I agree with him. I think that uh, there are a lot of consequences for that, and I saw a lot of that growing up. And one of those consequences were that my parents were very angry at each other, and they didn't speak for 18 years. They didn't speak to each other. But when I became a Christian in my first year at university, I got saved, and I surrendered my heart to the Lord. God started speaking to me about praying for my parents. He started challenging me to pray for my parents. And he said to me that I would see change. So I started praying for my parents, not always as faithfully as I could have. At the start, I think I misinterpreted a bit, and I went and preached at them and uh, confessed all my sins and told them about all this stuff. And my, especially my mother thought this was very, very weird. Um, that I now wanted to go on missions trips and that I was just talking about Jesus all the time. And she thought I had joined a cult. She thought Shofar was, was a cult and that I had gotten swept up in this thing. But then in about my, my second or third year, I started seeing change in my parents' life. My mother started doing Bible school with Shofar. And I came to her, I was like, Mom, I thought we were a cult. Like, what's this, you know? And she said, no, she could see that the friends I brought home and me had a genuine love for one another. And that started changing her heart. And in my fourth year, I had the privilege of baptizing my mother. And I also saw, started seeing change in my father's life. He, um, he had married again. He had a new family. And things started going a little bit rocky in his, new, in his new marriage. And he turned to God and cried out to him and asked for help. So I started seeing... Um, a change, a change in his life and, and a relationship with God budding. And yet I hadn't seen much change in their relationship. Um, they still weren't speaking to each other. And for four years I, I prayed for them. And then in my fourth year at university, I was visiting my dad one weekend. And um, he brought me back and I went back to Stellenbosch. And that night I got a, a phone call from my stepmother. And she told me my dad had just had a stroke and that he was in Panorama Hospital in Cape Town. And I remember getting in the car with a friend of mine that evening and driving through to Panorama, and I was emotional, but I just felt God say that he's in control. And I arrived at Panorama, and it was horrible to see my dad like that because at that point in his life, it was really just kind of a low point. Things were not going well at his work. Things were not go going well in his marriage. And now his health was also deteriorating, and I could, I, I, I spent some time with him and he couldn't um, speak properly, he couldn't uh, verbalize all the, or I don't know what the word is, but he couldn't get his words out properly and he couldn't feel half of his body and it was horrible to see him like that. As a son, you, you don't want to do that. But I spent time, time with him and then I went home and the next morning my mom phoned me and she told me that she just got off the phone with my dad and she forgave him for everything that had happened and um, two days later, my dad came out of hospital. He was completely clean from the stroke, 
and he came to our house to have to have lunch with us in Somerset West. And it was the first time since I could remember that me and my mom and my dad sat around a table and that we ate together and laughed together. Um, and that it was like normal and not, it was a little bit awkward because it was, you know, like a long time since that had happened. But, you know, it was a miracle. It was really a miracle. And there was genuine forgiveness between my parents. And after that, I also saw my dad's relationship with God deepening. Um, he used to be quite a timid man, but I saw a boldness which I had never seen before in him, in his decisions that he made at work and in his life. And I remember he would phone me and he would be like, Cornell, you know, God is now, God gave me this vision or God gave me this dream. And he told me about how he was experiencing God and hearing him speak to him. And I even saw God starting to use him. I remember one weekend going to the rugby with him. And after we'd finished watching the rugby, we went back to, to the car and there was a car guard and God, the Holy Spirit just prompted me to pray for this guy. So I went up to him and I asked him, can I pray for you? And he had a can't really remember what it was, but a problem, and I prayed for him, and got in the car, and then went home, and two weeks later, my dad went back to the rugby, and I couldn't join him, but he found the same car guard, and he goes up to him, and he's like, hey, remember me, my son prayed for you like two weeks ago, and I don't really think the guy could remember, but, um, but next to them in a car, there was a lady sitting with a window open, and as he says this, this lady just starts crying, and crying, and He's like, whoa, what's going on? So he goes up to her and he's like, what's wrong? And she just opens up about how her life is falling apart and how she doesn't have any hope and how she could really use prayer herself. And right there, my dad has an opportunity to, to pray with her and to encourage her and to trust God for change in her life, and which really encouraged me to see God starting to use my dad. And my relationship with him also um, deepened. I remember that year... Um, after one of the men's, we went to men's camp together and sitting after one of the sessions and just kind of speaking to my dad and him giving me advice about life and about stuff and me just receiving it and just thinking to myself, you know, for 18 years, I basically didn't have a dad and now I have a dad <laughs> and it's awesome. And God also brought um, opportunities for us to speak about a lot of the, the hurt and the things that had come through divorce and we could speak through that stuff. We could forgive each other and, 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 and move, move through that. And I still remember um, that year as well. That was 2014. Him phoning me on my birthday and telling me, saying to me, Cornell, I know, I know I don't say this to you often, but I love you and I'm proud of you. It was probably like one of the first times he'd, he'd done that. And yeah, it really meant a lot. And um, that year in August, he went to the Northern Cape to a farm close to Uppington where he was uh, going to receive deliverance ministry. And for three weeks, he was without signal. And I was preparing a sermon um, to preach in our George congregation. And the Saturday before I was meant to preach, I got a phone call from the farmer. And she said to me, my dad was on the farm and he was taking a nap and he had a second stroke. And they didn't know how bad it was, but he was on his way to Uppington to the hospital. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, <laughs> Uppington is really far away. I've got no idea what I need to do now. So I just continued preparing the sermon. The next day I started traveling to George. And then on the way there, I got a phone call from the nurse. And she said to me, Cornell, it doesn't look good. You've got to come as soon as you can. And 
I phoned my mom and she came through to George and we started traveling um, to Uppington through the night. But that, that morning, the morning of the 1st of September, um, at like 3 or 4, the doctor phoned me and she told me that my dad had passed away. And I remember just being in the car and like not really understanding what was going on. I just remember like screaming and um, being completely overwhelmed by emotion. But I was determined, so I went to Uppington. I went to the morgue. I asked them to show me his body. They said no. I forced them eventually to show me his body and laid my hands on him and prayed him, asked God to raise him from the dead, but you know, he, he wasn't resurrected. And I remember walking out of that morgue and just saying to God, God, I don't understand at all, but I trust you, and I trust your timing. And after that, a, a process of mourning began. I went back to Stellenbosch, and um, some of my friends came around me and just comforted me and encouraged me and brought me food and stuff. And that really, really helped. They were kind of like Job's friends before they started speaking. <laughs> they were just there. And um, they just loved me, and, and that was amazing. And I also, in that time, spent a lot of time with God, just walking in the nature around Stellenbosch and next to the Esterfeer, and just kind of spending a lot of time crying and, and sharing my heart with God and, and asking God, you know, why. And the thing is, I, I know my dad had a relationship with God, and I knew where he went. Praise God for that. But I was so sad that I wouldn't see the playing out of everything that had happened in his life in those previous two years. I was so excited to see what, you know, the, the, the manifestation of what God had done in his heart coming out in his work and in his life, and I wouldn't be able to do that, and I was sad. And then um, about two weeks after that, I was scheduled to speak at a conference in Ukraine, an academic conference, so I decided to go to get away for a bit, flew over and extended my trip and spent um, two weeks staying with a pastor and his family in the west of, of Ukraine. And I remember one morning just locking myself in the room that I was staying in and um, for 45 minutes just sitting there and just like weeping and crying. And the thing is, it wasn't because I was sad. I was still emotionally raw from the experience and I was still working through it, yes. But that morning, I could feel the presence of God so tangibly, probably the most tangibly that I've ever felt. It. And it was like God was right here and he was just like holding me and comforting me and I think for the first time in my life I understood what it meant when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is our comforter and later that morning God led me to to read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon where he just spoke to me very directly into my character about manhood and about carrying on and, and he strengthened me um, through that and in that time, I, I learned a very valuable lesson, and that is that in times when, when we suffer, presence is really important. And the presence of our friends and our family who come alongside us and can comfort us to an extent, but even more than that, the presence of God who is a loving Father and who cares about us to an, and who understands um, to a level that's deeper than any person can and who gives us hope for the future. And I think that the worst type of suffering that we can possibly go through is abandonment. To go through something like that, losing a loved one or whatever it may be, and to be alone in that, to have no one who can come alongside you and who can comfort you. And 
You know, when Jesus hung on the cross for us, He was abandoned by the people that he, and rejected by the people that He came to save. He was abandoned by His best friends. And there came a moment where He said, My God, He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The moment God the Father turned His face away and Jesus was completely alone. And He took the punishment that me and you deserve so that we never have to. That's why the Bible says now that because of what Jesus did, God will never leave us nor forsake us. That when we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. We never have to go through that abandonment and that rejection. And the, the band can, can come up. I don't know where she is. Sorry. But it's also, um, like Timothy Keller says, now, because of what Jesus did for us, it's not like we're not going to suffer because Christians do suffer. And Jesus said that we will have trials and tribulations in this world and we will go through suffering. But now when we suffer, we can become more like Jesus. Whether it's going well or whether it's not going well with us, we can know God and God will use it to bring us closer to Him in every circumstance. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jarberg.